0: Welcome to the second half of the first season of the Say No, kno org podcast. This is the place where we have been discussing everything drug-related from policy, crime, research... We talk about what's going on on the streets. We talk about what's going on in the universities and the research areas, and uh, we talk to people with lived experience, and we discuss ideas on how we can make things just a bit better. We receive funding for this podcast from the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse. You can check out the great work that they are doing at chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed in our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. And the views also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization that I'm associated with. And the same goes for our guests. A big shout out to DJ Charlie Hustle. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing the excellent music that you've been hearing both on the intro and outro of our podcasts. Everybody that's listening right now, please hit the subscribe button. It helps. Also go to our Facebook page. Engage with us there. If you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, you've got new ideas, anything, head to the head head onto social media. Send us a tweet. um, Challenge us. Uh, We're all in this together. We're all trying to make this world just a little bit better. Trying to find some solutions at work. So I hope you enjoy the second half of this season. I sure enjoyed making it thanks for checking out this this episode uh, today on the show with me, we have Garth Mullins. Garth is an activist, a writer, broadcaster, musician um, he 's one hell of a speaker. I saw a couple of his uh, presentations at the stimulus conference that happened in Edmonton a few weeks ago and i'm really happy to have uh, Garth on the show and and discuss some some issues that are going on in his community and also some ideas and suggestions on where we can go as a country so thanks a lot for coming on the show with me garth
1: oh thanks for having me man
0: yeah it's great so garth where did you get your start i mean i mean i i hadn't heard of you um before the conference but then i did a quick google search and you're you're everywhere i mean you're kind of a lot of times it seems like you've kind of been the voice of of the vancouver's downtown east side how did that how did that start
1: well i i mean not really. There's there's people who have much more of a claim to that than me, but uh, I mean, I've been uh this is my second overdose crisis that I'm in right now. Uh, Vancouver, oh, wow. we had one in the 1990s, and uh, I was an injection heroin user all the way through that, and I've been a heroin and methadone user for you know my adult life really. Wow. So I guess that's that's what gets you into being a drug user activist is for one being a drug user, but also seeing the urgency of change, um, as your friends and and colleagues die. You know, I started trying to count all the people I've lost and I got to about 50 and I had to stop because it's just, it's too, uh, it's too, it's too sad. It's just too upsetting. Uh, I figure about half of my cohort might've disappeared now. Um, and so it's, uh, it's it's quite dramatic, but I've also been an activist uh, in various social justice struggles my whole life as well, and uh, I think there's a big connection between, you know, a lot of things that are uh, systemic and structural that marginalize people, that exploit and oppress people, and the current overdose crisis. So I I really kind of make the links between those struggles.
0: No doubt. So when you say you this is your second crisis, what what was the cause of the first? Uh, quote-unquote crisis was there was there a tainted drug supply back then or what what was the issues
1: it was strong drugs right so oh, there was just really good strong uh china white heroin here and some people also will say this is the first place where uh, powder fentanyl started to get involved i don't know hmm. but certainly there was really strong drugs here and so you know if people weren't sure what their dosage should be or if they'd had um their use patterns disrupted by jail or something else then that really put them kind of in the crosshairs for uh potential overdose.
0: Oh, no doubt. I mean, still today, I mean, overdose as soon as someone is released from jail seems to be seems to be one of the highest rates. I I think we just had one here locally that I know of um just this week. So I know that's I definitely know that's uh that's a common common occurrence unfortunately.
1: Yeah, I, I heard about that um, in Saskatoon there. Um, yeah, that's too bad. My, I mean, my heart goes out to the, the guy's friends and family. I think um, here in that last overdose crisis, we learned a couple things. Um, at the same time as we are having this overdose crisis in the 90s in Vancouver, mm-hmm. there was the highest rate of HIV-AIDS uh, transmission in the industrialized world. And right. So these two things, this overdose crisis and this HIV crisis, were were happening together because both of policy reasons. And needles were very hard to come by back in the day. Uh, There was no needle exchange and then a needle exchange where it was a one-for-one. So you'd have to kind of roll up your sleeve and prove you were a drug user and then give one dirty needle to get one clean one back.
0: Which, of course,
1: made dirty needles a commodity that you could buy and sell in the street. Right. So it wasn't really until... Clean, um, clean needles,
0: you mean a commodity, yeah.
1: No, dirty needles were a commodity. Oh. oh. Dirty needles, so so that you could buy one and exchange it.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I mean, see. Oh, because if you didn't have
1: a needle to begin with, how the hell yeah, are you yeah. going to get one if it's an exchange? So right. it was a very stingy needle program. Huh. And there was a long struggle in Vancouver and many other places all over North America to try and get... Um, you know, the, the tap turned on. So the people could get access to clean needles. It seems like a fundamentally simple thing now, but this started from yeah. people doing it illegally out of their backpacks or setting up sort of gorilla needle distribution points in, uh, in little tables at, on the side of the street and stuff. And um, that's how that started. So it started with people doing it illegally. And the same thing that came out of that crisis in the nineties was the safe injection site uh, insight. And came slowly, but people first opened illegal unsanctioned ones, which were sometimes raided or shut down by police. But -hmm. we struggled for a long time until we got sort of a one that was um, legal. And then obviously we struggled for 10 years after that to to keep it going and and all the way up to the Supreme Court and that. And then Mm -hmm. as we're we're, um, talking now, Ontario has just decided how they're going to regulate uh, what were called overdose prevention sites and which are now called consumption and treatment services I right. think or, or that's how the Ford nation wants to rebrand them but they're <laughs> kind can't. of taking a page from Stephen Harper with a bunch of bureaucratic regulations and hoops and consult with the community and consult with the police and make sure this and that there can only be 21 across the whole province which has 14 million people so you see right. in some ways we're still fighting those same battles from the 1990s overdose but now we've got an overdose that is across the whole country. Well, the whole continent, yeah. I mean, it's spreading jurisdictions yeah. all over the America, world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: no doubt. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those frustrating times when we, when as a community and as a as a society we're not learning from the mistakes of the past and often I think that comes with frequent government changes, but you know, I the the one-to-one needle exchange is, is one of those policies that if you were to just go and talk to your neighbor. If I was to go talk to my neighbor and be like, "Hey, we're going to open up a needle exchange here in in Saskatoon or in Vancouver, wherever it wherever it may be," and say, "How do you think we can, you know, help reduce the spread of HIV and get the clean needles out of the children's playgrounds?" Then they'd say, "We'll make them bring one in and give them one." And I think that's it's where these policies are created without either consulting with user groups or consulting with people who it's affecting or it's making policies without actually understanding the culture that it is that you're trying to you know alleviate some some harm from because i mean i have to admit when i first when i first heard of insight um back in my you know i don't even know if i was a cop when it first uh when it first opened And it was a one-to-one needle exchange. um, And those were the policies that they also wanted to implement here with our needle exchange programs initially. And I was like, Oh, that makes complete sense. A one-to-one exchange. But now that I've actually been, (laughs) been, uh, been in working in the community for long enough now, it's like, well, that doesn't
1: work. Yeah. I mean that the solution to to needles left in the park is pretty simple. I mean, most people are very responsible with their needles. It's, it's people who are just in uh, such a state of instability and chaos that, that have that trouble yeah, yeah but if you if you have organizations drug user organizations or service organizations and you you pay people uh to pick them up then you know you can have a remarkably good response and a very clean city if you just organize to take that in hand and it, it it is a manageable problem
0: yeah there's no doubt yeah there's no doubt that it's just a simple little shift in policy can just make a dramatic difference in in the way we deal deal with things um, but we I still think,
1: have we still have policy made by people who don 't understand the impacts that that's are being right. generated right so it 's like that's you right. have somebody who 's like popped the hood of your car who really doesn't understand engines but is grabbing like spanners and drills and random yeah. hammers and just beating yeah. it up till you know and and so of course you 're getting a car that doesn 't work properly,
0: yeah, and not to mention they're asking a whole bunch of other people who know nothing about cars what they think that they should do, and it's that 's basically what we 're voting for right so i mean that's 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 it's i mean i don't i don't envy politicians but it's definitely a difficult job um it's definitely a difficult job to legislate uh you know these these massive changes that you know some people might find morally reprehensible whereas if they actually that's where i think you know these movements that start kind of from the ground up and then Kind of those rogue I guess I, I mean I you were part of those, I'm sure those you know the first the first exchange programs they happen kind of rogue, um like you said, the police may have raided a few back in the day, but that's kind of where it has to start, and then the community kind of adapts and gets educated from there, and then all of a sudden i it's mean not such a big, to be you know, honest
1: we still we still have a lot of trouble with policing and harm reduction in Vancouver. The chief of police you know talks a good a good line on it. As yeah. as most politicians do, it is a standard talking point now,
0: but when yeah, it comes true. to
1: walking the walk, we have something different. We have, um, you know, we've had a, a few crackdowns on the downtown east side over the last year. I mean, it's a regular feature of the neighborhood, but mm-hmm. um, just real crackdowns on the nickel and dime stuff, you know, possession of stolen property and very small stuff, street vending and that, but also uh, a long ongoing parking police cruisers outside of overdose prevention sites. And right. that has the effect of driving people away from them.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to parking police cruisers, most most uh, most police agencies now in the country, I think, use the Comstat model of policing, which basically means you you allocate resources to high crime areas, and that the reason we don't have, or at least when we design new neighborhoods, we try not to create projects anymore. The the idea is in a modern neighborhood, very idealistic, but in a modern neighborhood, the idea is to build um, a community that has every income bracket living within the same blocks. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to it's supposed to happen, and that's that's a little idealistic. But that's kind of what modern city planners came to, and that's because when it comes to projects, we, one of the last things you you want to do is is push a whole bunch of disenfranchised people together in one geographical location, because they start breeding off of each other and predators move into that location and start taking advantage of them. And then it does create, um, a bit, a, quite a bit of chaos. And, and I mean, you see with the with the safe injection sites, all of a sudden, you know, that there is a ton of drug users in this area Well, there's people that want to take advantage of those drug users and sell them products. It's not always just, you know, from their friends that are moving in to sell them, um, to sell them something that they've known from a trusted supply. I mean, this is how the crisis occurred, right? So you have you have organized crime members moving in, cutting the product with something so they can make more profit, and then you have the people, unfortunately, dying from it. So there's a, there's a lot of things that you have to think about. Um, I mean, I, I'd like to hope the intent behind the, the police officers sitting outside of Insight is to reduce the violence around that area so that people are safer going in and out might not be might not be the reality and might not be the perception of those that are using because of the the relationship that they may or may not have with the police but i mean that's that's typically what i would do here i mean when i used to patrol our core neighborhood here only a few years ago and i still do to an extent i kind of frequent the areas like the friendship inn um you know i go around there and and just be just simply being visible seems to cut down on the calls for violent uh, the violent calls for service in those areas so hopefully that's what they're doing i can't say that that's what it is but that'd be my perspective anyways
1: yeah i mean it it doesn't seem like it to me uh it doesn't seem like it to people in the vancouver area network of drug users and and the groups that i work with and it doesn't seem like it to the people who run the ops's who have those interactions every day um so I mean, there's a lot to unpack there about what you just said about city design and downtown Eastside and, and, mm-hmm. and when disenfranchised people are all together. You know, I, 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 I probably can't peel that onion entirely, but <laughs> I can sure. say that in Vancouver, there's a real concerted effort to address that. And it's called gentrification. Right. So they're just actually bringing lots of wealthy people into a neighborhood that's been traditionally uh, working class and lower income. And that has a whole bunch of other deleterious effects. And so, yes, oh, sure. they call it social mix of trying to build social housing and right next door or in the same building as uh, luxury condos. And sometimes they have a different door for the rich and the poor to go in and out of. And <laughs> oh, boy. So, I mean, it's it's a difficult one, right? But from drug user activist perspective, there actually is safety in this there's not there's not the same kind of predatory problem that you're pointing out that's actually reduced because people are safer in the downtown east side right now and i'm not trying to romanticize or create a glowing picture but because there's so many of us are trained with naloxone so many people know each other there's so many community networks of support there so yes there is still um you know disagreements and, and drug debt collecting and stuff like that um but it is not it is not the situation um that you describe there, and in fact, one of the things that people have to watch out for is and this has happened to um a colleague of mine who's actually on the editorial board of my podcast, which is called crackdown uh he's just had his bankroll taken several times by police with no um no charge, no taking it into evidence, no nothing like that, you know, so you just, have, just have your think- drugs poured out or rubbed into the sidewalk and, and maybe you don't even have any drugs. You know, he just, welfare day, had his welfare check taken, right? And knowing the guy for 25 years, he's like had a dramatic enough life that he doesn't need yeah. to bullshit to me, you know? So so, uh, so
0: what would it? What would the excuse, what would the language or the excuse be by the police officer there to, to take his cash out of his pocket? Like, what are they saying that it is, that it's proceeds of crime
1: or something? I suppose, yeah. But wouldn't yeah, okay. you wouldn't there be some formal process for cataloging oh, that or for
0: sure yeah there of course yeah yeah see part see part of what happens it's that's, that's uh that's difficult is that uh you're not i don't know how to say this without i'm, I'm not trying i'm not trying to say that police themselves are are a group uh, that have been uh it's 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 tough to, it's tough to talk about but the Oh, the but drug war lie. spreads corruption lie. everywhere. Yeah, th- and that's the truth. But uh, but let's just think of it through a common sense lens, right? The average cop in Vancouver is probably making a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year with overtime and everything like that. Yeah. That's a pretty. That's a lives in a nice house. You know, they they have decent incomes. They have a good job security. Uh, to to basically rob someone, which which is what I would call that um, that behavior, just taking somebody's cash when and what pocketed it for coffee seems pretty extreme. Like that's kind of something like, you know, out of the 1970s movies where cops are paid $30,000 a year and they're all shady on the payroll of some gangster or something, but to roll up and to take a drug user's cash just out of their pocket for no reason, uh, to risk, to, to risk that kind of, I don't know, to, to take that risk seems pretty odd to me. Um, now there's bad apples in every organization for sure but i mean that's that's a that's a downright robbery
1: so the other advantage of having uh folks living within 12 blocks is we can have meetings every day and get people together who experience the same police the same patterns and we can all connect the dots and figure out oh you got to watch out for this particular cop or these two or when they come down and people will say hey six up watch out it's I won't say the names or the nicknames, yeah, yeah. but you know, there'll be a couple people coming down the road and yeah. that doesn't come from nowhere. Th- these are nope, survival sure. skills and it's for crowdsourced sure. information, Yeah. you know, so I don't know what the cops motivation is uh, uh, for their income. I don't, I don't claim to have any thoughts about that. I just know I've heard this, a Particular Same situation stories. enough that we've yeah. explored the possibilities of legally actioning it with um advocates, uh, lawyers in the neighborhood, and you know, we re- we realize the um the difficulty in doing some of that too. Uh, but that it's it's a phenomenon, and I don't know how prevalent it is. Yeah, but I'm I, sure. I guess I, I guess I mean, there's the, lots
0: of avenues. I mean, there's public complaints commissions, there's in BC, there's a the BC civil liberties movement, I mean, there's all kinds of agencies i mean if a cop's doing that he should be fired right like i, I mean agree. when, when I, was... I
1: i have been through the public complaints commission process the rcmp public complaints commission and the vancouver police public complaints commission and well, these are be
0: separate there should be separate uh, ones in the police service as well
1: uh, yeah I, I agree and that has emerged and uh it's better to not have the police policing the police i i think yeah for sure but i i think that this is one of the things that we are going to try to be covering in the podcast that this guy and Great. a bunch of other people and me are working on, is this, on the one hand, talking a good line on harm reduction, but on the yeah. other hand, continuing to implement the criminalization of drug users at the same time. And this sort of makes me reflect on something else we talked about at the conference, which is uh, policing statistics, or at least arrest statistics for... Right. Um, for drugs. And, and these sort of show an increase over the last decade. They aren't consistent though. Uh, some have actually gone down a little, some have gone up a little, like, so for example, cannabis has been on the leveling out and declining, uh, cocaine leveling out opiates going up. Uh, and these are arrests for simple possession. So, you know, in that context, I, I hear, um, you know, the, the words of municipal officials and police in different parts of the country, which are now largely pro harm reduction, mm-hmm. but at the same time I see this ongoing and increasing criminalization and crackdowns, like I was talking about earlier, and yeah. those two things seem in contradiction to me.
0: They are, man. This is the this is the fight I'm doing uh, on a daily basis. I mean, even the 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 police officers i would say that are working now that are under that have been that have been hired within the last 15 years i would say are very different and just the culture's different and the mindsets different than the ones that were hired before that um, the lot of a lot of the police officers we have to remember that are actually running police departments across the country are old enough that they actually policed at one point or at least there's probably a few kicking around that would have that would have policed prior to the charter of rights and freedoms, which came in in like 85, 86. So that's a bit of it. That's where a lot of the disconnect happens as well as a lot of the old school guys are having to get educated and a lot of them are too stubborn. So, I mean, that's the battle that I even have internally. I mean, but what I always, what I always think to myself is what's the intent of this individual is the intent evil. No, it's the intent even though they're making the wrong decisions or they're going in the wrong direction, in my opinion, what's their intention here? Is it, is it, you know, is it somewhere out of self gratification
1: that I, I, you know, I see that I can see the difference between the generations of cops. Right. And, and I, I I can only imagine what kind of battle that must be, but I don't have the luxury of asking myself, what's the intention of this individual I have to ask myself, what's the intention of this institution? And the intention of the institution, although it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, has one overwhelming role for drug users. And the money that's spent on drugs and response to drugs in general has one overwhelming source, which is police. So police have a huge, giant influence in how this all goes down. Uh, well, we very could, well we could resourced d- influence, and it's against the interests of the people uh, with whom I work and, and I'm active.
0: Yeah, I mean, the pl- I mean, the, the reality is, is police organizations themselves could choose to decriminalize drugs tomorrow. I mean, we, we could. We just use our discretion that's been given that's been given to us both by the Supreme Court and and the Criminal Code, and we just choose not to arrest. I mean, the the vast majority of people who just have a small amount of drugs in their pocket, I know. I know the statistics you mentioned um, seems to contradict that in theory uh, but I mean I, I can tell you if I deal with someone who just has you know weed in their pocket prior to legalization they weren't getting charged you know at at absolute most um, if they had committed another crime then they would get arrested with that but that's because I have to so What I mean by that is, when it comes to police statistics, for one, are the most frustr. For somebody who's trying who tries to use police statistics for good and for public education, it's very frustrating because I know how they're created and I know how they're kept, and they're the most. I'm sure they are the most manipulated statistics there are because both sides of the fence are constantly using them to say the opposite things, and so the way most police statistics, what most police statistics track, are just simply arrests. Well, that's very different because I should say they they claim to track arrests, but what they actually are tracking are charges. So someone could have been arrested and released without charge thousands of times. And then it's the one time that they were charged that that's actually logged. But technically speaking, I took away that person's rights and freedoms at least for a few minutes or an hour, or it could be up to 24 hours, depending on the situation. As long as I release them before 24 hours, um, they're good to go. And there's really no statistic no statistic that captures that um so, so let me least, roll
1: back a second because you said yeah. something earlier which i really think is worth picking up on you said police could decriminalize drug possession tomorrow if they want yes to. they have yes they discretion. should yes. I, I just think that that's like a fantastic um thing to hear coming from your perspective as a police officer like i really like I really value hearing this, I, and when I was, I had some trepidation coming on the podcast a little bit. Like, yeah. This is really great, you know. Like I want to sample that and make an EDM song, you know, or something. Yeah,
0: pl- <laughs> an EDM <laughs> song, please do.
1: Yeah, uh, um, but on the statistics, you know, um, I I agree. Police statistics are very hard to use. The, the fact are, that yeah. they're they're so opaque and and difficult. Um, probably doesn't sit well with the Comstat um, community statistics nope. policing kind of model, right? But I think that everybody would benefit from much more transparency in how they're collected, how they're aggregated, the granularity with which we can see them. I mean, not not obviously keeping people uh, people's privacy and everything intact. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that would be really great. But what I do see is the fact that the, the – Possession arrests for different drugs have moved in different directions. Shows me that this concurrent arresting doesn't explain everything. But you and me, at at one point, we're kind of comparing anecdotes and theories about the data. So it's like, it, it the usefulness of the discussion starts to dissipate. But you know, I yeah. I, I think well one th- well one th- the storyline well, you're trying to put out would benefit from more data. You know?
0: Oh, it it would definitely benefit from more data, but. The the issue that that's the thing. So there's when it comes to police stats in generals, it's let's say I charge you, Garth Mullins. uh, You decided to steal from Home Hardware and uh, and punched the and punched the loss prevention officer on your way out. I catch up with you, I arrest you. I'm now charging you with the assault on the security guard, the theft. Um, that you committed and then you also had a couple oxy pills in your pocket so i pick you up for possession as well that's three separate stats so it doesn't link it to the one individual as far as stats canada is concerned so then you just say oh look possessions possession and um, of drug arrests are up because you know this oxy one just contributed to the overall possession stats But really, because it doesn't. Yeah, just
1: if you look at the numbers of assaults and stuff like that, even the numbers of B and E, it still doesn't match up. You still don't explain all those arrests, and um, you know if you if you think about um, the different types of drugs that generate possession arrests, yeah, like really, people aren't going to the home hardware to knock it over who are holding cocaine, but they are who are holding like. Opiates. Usually math. Like there's, there's, Using there's, meth here. <laughs> usually, yeah. usually
0: everyone's everyone seems to have a point of meth in their
1: pocket nowadays. Right. I just mean across the country, the the fact that the trend line is different between pot and heroin. Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. And For heroin, sure. For sure. Th- those are going I mean, in harder, different directions yeah. really yeah. sort of kind of gives trouble to your narrative there, I think, a
0: little yeah. bit. Nope. You're 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 bang on. Um yeah, when it comes when it comes to uh you know if C- coke uh heroin meth definitely officers i would say um are less likely to use their discretion and let the person off um
1: except for coke it's going down across the country so if you look at the statistics this is what i'm saying is that not yeah. all hard drugs are equal so right. if all hard drugs were equal then we there might be more of a basis to say well they're just involved in an assault or something at the same time but I, I think we're creating the most boring part of a podcast here. Yeah, yeah. To no try doubt. and parse the statistics <laughs> that people can't see, but they are available yeah. on StatsCan. So.
0: Yeah, they def they definitely are. Um, so, Garth, when you were when you were rolling out with these uh, these first safe injection sites, uh, were you part of? Were you kind of part of the downtown eastside community, or were you reporting on that when when they just started going with the? I guess the second crisis that we're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the OP, we had Insight opened its safe injection site in two thousand three, and um, then we you know spent the next decade fighting with Stephen Harper about its right to exist. Right. Um, meanwhile, uh, people were were making policy decisions such as the reformulation of oxycodone into oxyneo, uh, such yep. as changing what methadone was available to the majority of people in Canada to a, a worser formulation, a not as effective formulation and, uh, trying to cut people off at the doctor who are getting prescription opiates with changes to guidelines to prescribers. Yeah. So these, these kind of three things I think really were the, uh, touching off the crisis. I mean, this is not uh, as much a crisis of bad drugs as it is of bad drug policy. Of course. And, uh, then it really broke. It started to break here in 2014, 2015 is when we were starting to feel it. And then there was an official declaration, geez, I think in 2016. Yeah. Uh, and it was that winter here in Vancouver. And I, it's a, it'll stay with me forever because this is when the, the the graph, the chart of the statistics of overdose deaths just jumped. It
0: just jumped. And yeah. uh,
1: it, it was, there was a lot of snow. It was a cold winter and it was really long. And that's when people just said, screw it. We're not waiting for the authorities to give us permission. They just started setting up tents in the alleys and doing, uh, you know, reversing overdoses and giving people harm reduction supplies. And this was technically illegal at that point. Right. And, uh, and you know, these proliferated a bunch of them and now they're across the country. But um, in BC at the time, the government either had to shut them down or find some little loophole for them to become legal. And so they became legal legal by being you know kind of called overdose prevention sites instead right. of safe injection sites but the same thing is going on in both of those places essentially uh I've got... the opss are just more nimble and quick less right. institutional
0: I've, i gotta, i got i got to ask you this question does does it feel like we're just kind of stepping our toe in the water of harm reduction in your in your experience rather than cuz to me um I mean most of my career was was spent, and it's still to an extent working with organized crime or within organized crime um, investigations and if you just simply gave a clean uh supply, we wouldn't need a safe injection site We wouldn't need
1: absolutely no, I totally agree with you yeah, I mean, safe injection sites and naloxone are literally the last intervention you can make, like the last thing you can do for someone in their final few heartbeats. They are the most downstream, most triage, most after the fact kind of thing that you could possibly do. If if we want to move upstream, it's like, let's start. I mean, the best substitute for heroin is heroin. The best substitute for fentanyl is fentanyl. You know, the best substitute, whatever it is, that's causing the difficulty in people's lives. That difficulty goes away without the money and supply problems.
0: Yeah. Do you, so from from your friends in the community that are still uh, that are still using intravenous heroin. Do you think that there would be the risk of overdose if they had just a, a medical grade supply if they were given dilaudid or whatever it is? Would there be a risk of overdose?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like uh, diacetylmorphine. Is, yeah. uh pharmaceutical grade heroin. And we've had a a trial, a pilot going on here that's had you know, about 150 people in it for almost a decade. And although there's been a crisis, that number hasn't moved. We haven't been able to open that prescription heroin program up wide across the province, even though um, the results from that are phenomenal. You know, even though there's been other experience with it elsewhere in the world, for sure. I mean, safe supply is the key to this. Like you can post you can build a border wall like Donald Trump and you're not gonna keep <laughs> yeah. fentanyl. Someone will get a catapult not. and sling it over, you know. It's just yeah. it's it's like trying to hold water in your fist. You, yeah. you we can't hit keep it, on it out the of the side. jail. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we can't yeah. keep it out of jail. How are we gonna keep it out of our, our streets? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, the best thing would be to keep the people out of jail. <laughs> Stop yeah, putting I mean, them in there. You know, then you you don't put drug users in jail, then you're not gonna have drugs in jail.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and unfortunately I mean, I I, I, uh, I appreciate the shirts and everything about, you know, good people use drugs, and there's no doubt that's true. There's also a lot of bad people that use drugs or a lot of people that do very bad things while they're using or between using or because they're so desperate. Um, so when it comes to, but when it comes to giving this legal supply, it seems like, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at this from the lens of of someone just in the middle. I mean, I'm in I'm in the world. I've policed the world. I'm trying to make changes. I would like to personally see a place where, you know, if you're struggling with an addiction because you have whatever's happened in your life, you can go to your doctor, you can go wherever, you can get a supply for what you need. You know, there's ongoing support for, you know, if this if this is an issue that you want to actually stop at some point, here's the support to do it. So as a big picture guy who thinks that we want to get there, and then I suddenly go to a place like the Stimulus Conference, and there, there's, there's this in your face, you can see the industry that's built around harm reduction. It's like, oh, now we're going to have to take down the walls of this industry to be able to actually get to something that's going to really help the community. Do you, do you notice that at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, harm reduction just hasn't even really been built out. It certainly has gotten a little institutionalized and medicalized and stuff, but it it is triage, right? And so it still exists as a bunch of pilot projects and a bunch of uh, small start measures. It's not like a blanket part of the medical system across the country, right? So for sure, but I think for someone who, who has a real commitment to doing something about this like you, the, the perfect place is in your own ranks, you know? And it, I mean, it sounds like that's what you're doing every day, but that message of, Hey, um, comrades, Hey, fellow officers, we could stop this tomorrow if we wanted to. Right. Uh, like what you said earlier in the podcast, like just <laughs> making bumper stickers and going everywhere and selling it to every, uh, police force and jurisdiction and police union you possibly could, you know, as in, um, like it's safer for you. It's better for you, your job, your career, everything will be better. You'll be able to do the kind of policing that maybe you want you to want. do, or you'll be able yeah, to focus exactly. on the bigger fish. You don't have to, like, you don't have to be doing this anymore. You know, if, if you could do that, I mean, we had a, a guy here who's passed on, who was um, Gil Pooter. who was an officer in the VPD and he called yeah. for uh, making heroin legal God in the nineties. Right. Yeah. And he was just like, when we heard that, we were just like, Wow! If somebody inside the police is saying that, that really must show us something about what it's like to, uh, to be on the other side of this drug war.
0: Yeah, Gil. Gil was one of my inspirations to, uh, to starting our organization. Say no.
1: uh, Oh, that's great. I mean, yeah, your if your message to your your fellow officers is stand down, that that's a that's a message I can really get behind, and I know it's a hard sell, but believe me all of this stuff has been a hard sell forever until it yeah. isn't until it seems normal like what you guys want to just give out needles what you want a safe injection site what you want to prescribe heroin every time something like that comes or what you don't want to be called junkies and addicts is every time you try and move the needle uh, no pun intended yeah a little bit <laughs> like you, you experience this kind of backlash effect but you just you do once you kind of feel how the waves move and I respect it can be probably a pretty heavy backlash within law enforcement. But once, well, he, once you it's feel tough. that, yeah. yeah,
0: it's, it's so tough, I, but it's it a lot it's, of
1: you around though, I think who are starting to see this.
0: Oh, there, there, well, there's no doubt, man. I mean, I've, I have, I have police officers come up to me, um, that I've never even met before. They're just like, Hey, are you that cop that thinks drugs should be legal? I'm like, yeah. Can you tell me about that? And you don't spend five minutes talking to them. Like, Oh, those are good points. And then they kind of, you know, they go away pondering. So, it's uh, it it's definitely happening, and I think um, I think everybody knows, especially the cops that care about the community they're policing. They they can see the damage that's being done. Now on the, now on the flip side, we're also responding to the calls where, you know, some dude just beat the absolute piss out of his out of his wife and she's not, she's refusing to give a statement and it's just like, what the hell do you do? And you know, he happens to have some drugs in the house or something. So it's like, Hey, this will get him into jail for, for the night and away from her. And so sometimes we're triaging out there and, and definitely using the laws creatively, you know, but you can victim. arrest people
1: for assault without a complaint, right?
0: You, you can, um, you can, yeah. So sometimes, um, it depends right. on the situations. A lot of times it's, it's, you don't have the evidence, like you don't have the evidence to take them out. Yeah, like
1: yeah. I, so. Let's. I, I see Yeah, what you're it's
0: like you know, but you can't prove it. Knowing and proving are two very different things. Um, I w- I wanted to ask you, I as as an activist, uh, Garth, I I find, I find that there's, uh, and I mean, I I've con- I've always considered myself as a bit of a social activist as well. Even before policing, I thought that's why they hired me, but, um, but they, it, but it, it turns seemed, out that wasn't. <laughs> well, well, maybe maybe it, wasn't. it was. It's just let's just say it's an uphill battle sometimes trying to uh, get initiatives get initiatives out there that I think would help the community, but nobody nobody is ready to accept it yet. But no doubt, when, yeah. But uh, I find that in when it comes to the drug use activist movement, there's there's often the narrative to when it comes to talking about a drug user, we need to meet those people where they're at. But it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect in meeting the average citizen who thinks that they care about the community. Therefore, drugs should be illegal. We're, it seems like we're we're not meeting that person where they're at, and you know an, an example would be if if I went and talked to, you know, one of my neighbors who has grown up in a upper middle class family. They have they probably you know they might have a family member who's some somewhere along the line struggled with an addiction but they really don't know what's happening and they just see that oh there was another there was another police report of a you know a, a search warrant executed by the police or a gang stabbing or or a shooting or drive by or something like that and they're right there like oh we got to get these drugs off the street we got to you know support the police in cracking down on all this shit how do we meet that person where they're at to to show them that you know this isn't I know your intention's good, but it's misinformed.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a real struggle. I I can say that when you saw um, my presentations and and the presentations of my colleagues at um, stimulus, we were talking to a room that was largely ourselves and people who had, uh, you know, there was a bit of preaching to the choir. Going yeah, on there, no right? on. No doubt. When you're away from the, the choir and you're, um, you're talking to a different class. Like if I talk to a university class or, uh, you know, uh, people who aren't really in the life, y- you do change how you argue. You don't change the principles gotcha. you're arguing for. Gotcha. Right. But I mean, like, I don't, I don't think it's appropriate to like turn people's lives into dollars and cents figures. Um, but all of a sudden if you're talking to like someone who's really obsessed about their taxes and they're like, we can't afford to coddle you drug users. I've heard this all the time. Right. I said, well, you kind of can't afford not to because it's much, much cheaper to give someone a methadone prescription than it is to not give someone a methadone prescription. Right. You know? uh, And, and so sometimes you have to find the argument that, that works for the person, you know, or if, if people are worried about, um, you know, needles in the park or something like that. You have to put up great big signs that say, "Call this number to get the needles picked up," right. and you work with the you know you know you make sure that there's someone on the end of that and that they come and you show people that it can work this way. And 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 finally, I think you got to show them our crackdowns don't fucking work.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, and and that's the hardest thing probably to communicate as law enforcement because it, maybe it just sounds like you don't want to do it or something like that but that's the truth. It just, it, it doesn't really work unless you're willing to sort of militarily occupy a neighborhood.
0: Yeah. Which even then you can't, no, right. would you do not want to, but it's still not going to keep it out or do anything.
1: And I think you can say, look, if we organize this with, uh, you know, uh, NGOs and, and community groups and get sort of this sort of different players that often make, a a really successful harm reduction site or something like that. If you get them involved, it makes it safer for everybody in the neighborhood. You bring, you bring more community to bear. You bring wraparound services and for all the homeowners and concerned citizens out there, they have kids, kids experiment with drugs. Now there's some place where the kids can actually learn how to be safe. That's right, right on their corner or in their neighborhood. You know, it it makes it makes it safer, makes it less likely that one of their families is going to be going to a funeral in that year. Right. Right. Because I bet you, when you talk to those homeowners, you know, you get a big group of them, there's, there's someone in there with kids, you know, that are, that they're, the kids are into it, or the, the parent is worried that the kids will be, or some family member, you know, some uncle or somebody.
0: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's typically what it is, but they're, you know, the average mindset. I mean, we're in Saskatchewan, right? This is the most conservative province, probably, arguably, if not Alberta, Um, but, because of that, I feel that there is. I, I'm hoping, at least, uh, that we can kind of skip over what some of the others, what the uh, some of the other provinces have have tried and and failed at when it comes to harm reduction initiatives. You know, maybe we can maybe we can skip over because we don't have it. We don't even have a safe injection site here, man. So. Maybe we can skip over that and just go straight to prescriptions and, and handing them out. I mean, that'd be, that'd be super nice. Like, let's not build a whole infrastructure around something that's just triaging, and let's actually try to get to, to some roots of these issues and, and right, support right. one another. So, but, so
1: when I said um, a safe injection site, naloxone, I, I understand naloxone is also hard to get in uh, yeah. Saskatchewan, right? I mean, I saw yeah. you took a whole bag of naloxone kits <laughs> yeah. from Alberta. So you, sir, yeah, I've already officer, given are a, you're a naloxone mule. Uh, transporting yep. naloxone across interprovincial jurisdictions—that's um, right, yep. which is completely legal, I'm sure—but because naloxone isn't a drug and right. can't hurt anybody, but, Rod's, it but is I, scheduled. I, I, but yeah, yeah, I just don't <laughs> know why. But yeah, it's yeah, fair point. You're, you're ratting I mean, me out here, Garth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can edit this part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I just—I I only meant this as to say that it's still very hard to get it in Saskatchewan, uh, yep. naloxone. And so like my hat's off to you for, for seeing the opportunity in that conference to at least uh, make a little dent in that. Um, But I I think that although I said before, safe injection sites and naloxone are literally the last interventions you can make uh, in someone's life. They're absolutely essential. Like you cannot, there's no getting around that. Like if, if you, there's no, there's no leapfrogging over that because even during the transition to when everybody finally gets on something that holds them, there's still going to be that time when people are still using, well, they're getting titrated or well, they're getting used to the replacement therapy. So they're just, right. there, there, there's no option I can see that lets you guys avoid OPSs. You know, and Ontario is going to find out very fast that they're trying to bureaucratically strangle them. It's going to just produce more deaths.
0: Hmm. But,
1: and I think a place like, you know, you you guys obviously know best in, in Saskatchewan where the right places are, but where there are yeah. where there are neighborhoods and where there are, where there are congregations, having an O.P.S. also gives you a, a place where you could actually maybe start giving out um, Suboxone or Methadone or Dillies or whatever kind of um, you know substitution treatment that you, that you get to. You know,
0: yeah, yeah, we're pretty good. We're pretty good with our our Methadone uh, program here. I have to admit, um, it's been around for quite a few years and and they give out lots and lots of it. Um so yeah, we're we're not bad with that, but there's we've definitely got we've definitely got a long way to go. And when um, you get to
1: those sort of next tier um substitution treatments or when people are getting prescription heroin or or something, I mean, we still don't really have that in BC. Most right. most people in BC who are right. are getting any kind of treatment are on suboxone a little bit and mostly methadone, mostly old school methadone or a replacement for it called methadose, which is not quite as good as it used to be. But I mean, that's still with all the innovations you hear coming from Vancouver, they are still very peripheral to the whole big picture.
0: Yeah. Well, even, uh, even my mind is, is, has changed. I mean, I, it was only, I would say a handful of years ago where I said a safe injection site in Saskatoon would be stupid simply because not because I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a waste to provide, to provide the service to the individuals it was just the fact that i didn't think it would be used and uh i think it might have been my own naive, my being naive possibly but my my theory behind it was that it's you know it's cold as fuck here in the winter it it's minus 40 all the time so our needle houses where people are selling preloaded syringes out of this is a this is where all your friends are it's warm why would i buy my 20 my, you know my 20 pack get my cold ass on the bus or walk down to the safe so you consumption guys, site and use there.
1: You guys need the minus forty model then, which is That's to right. meet people where they are. And if they are at someone's house, then someone should get paid for making it safe there. You know? Ah. Someone should get a stipend to just be like, I know naloxone. I got a big, big ass box of clean needles. I know what's going on. And just make it so that anyone could become that person. You know, anyone can can like let their house and I know there's probably will give the neighbors who call you up a heart attack, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, th- that's, that's maybe the kind of flexibility because really a- as drug users, we've been running, you know, safe injection in places for a very long time. They just haven't been right. official, but, but people right. have been trying to improve those sort of things. If, if the, um, you know, if if people are given the proper public health tools to really do a good job of that, you know, if they're given an oxygen tank, a bunch of Naloxone, a bunch of clean s- supplies and stuff like that, maybe a bit of money to to defray the, the costs or whatever, then you probably would get people coming forward to want to do that. You know, it's, yeah, it's that's better at someone's house if people aren't yeah. dying there.
0: Yeah, you know what? I, I, <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. I've never thought of that before. But, uh, what would you say then to, I, I talked to, uh, my former police chief, Clive Wayhill, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he was actually the president of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. And so we were we were talking about these issues, and I was saying, you know, like, you know, why can't we get these things in place? And, and he said one of the hardest battles to fight is with the community because... Everybody thinks, even if they think that it is a great idea, like a halfway house, for example, which everyone in Canadian society now understands that when you're released from jail, it makes sense not to you know not to go straight into the community but but you know transition there uh especially if you've been away for a while, but nobody wants to live beside it and so when it's when it comes to calls for service from the police, I mean we get calls all the time about well that you know this house is selling and it's sad. It's frustrating for me being a guy that's obsessed with organized crime because I want to go and work on you know these guys that are that are really making the money making you know hand over fist money off the backs of these drug users, and yet the calls for service and what the neighbors care about is that one house beside them that's you know selling 1500, bucks a day if that. You know, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough world. I'll bet world. you,
1: I'll bet you, if they had the the minus forty uh, OPS model that we were just talking about, I'll bet you somebody would see an interest in reducing those kind of nuisance things to the neighbors. You know, so conducting a business that's like um, lower footprint to the neighbors.
0: Lower footprint, yeah. Kind of, kind of, put some policies in place to sort of say, look, if we're going to pay you to run this house or or support you to kind of have a kind of have an off the beaten path safe injection area let's uh you know abide by these policies to help your neighbors out sort of thing
1: yeah i mean it's it's kind of out of my my mandate to figure out how to make the neighbors comfortable with this (laughs) yeah Um, exactly but more and more people are getting uncomfortable with the amount of deaths so yeah that's one thing and you know um like i I I think that we see that same um, instinct on everything. Like it's hard for even a methadone clinic to find a place to open in Vancouver. So it's not even, it's a completely legal operation where doctors just give out um, prescriptions to people and you sit politely in the waiting room and that's it. You know, there's not a cruiser there every day. People aren't getting let out in cuffs. It's just, you know, you go take your piss test, get your script and you're on your way. Yeah. Um, But I, I think that the stigma that goes with being a drug user is very powerful, has a no very powerful it. effect on the neighbors. And the the greatest way to address that stigma would be to take us back to, to, to you convincing your, your fellow officers to stand down and stop arresting for drug possession. You know, because this is how a society decides what is stigmatized, by what is illegal and what's legal. What's not. You know, that's the big, sharp dividing line between here's a pariah and here's a citizen, you know, here's an outcast and here's like a, an orderly con- contributing member of society. You right. Know, that that's, that's how we organize it. That's how the society runs. And so, um, anti-stigma campaigns as well-intentioned as they are, don't really quite have the tools to get at the, the DNA of stigma, which is the law so, or the uh, enforcement of the law, I should say.
0: So, uh, so to me, my, my frustration is, 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 in, in those arguments is that, um, what do we do about the individual now that's having to commit the crimes to still buy his illicit supply? We still have to arrest them. I mean, they still have to be held accountable. I mean, just because, you know, this is this is often the argument that I use for, um, you know, people who are out of touch with what's going on in their communities is as I as I flip I flip the discussion back around to legalization by simply saying like, look, that individual you might not, that individual over there is struggling with an addiction. That person over there has to commit crimes to get it. Just because that person is struggling with an addiction, why should they have to break into your garage? And so they started agreeing. Yeah, why should they have to break into my garage? Yeah, that's right. Let's stop them from breaking into your garage. Yeah, let's stop them from breaking. How do we do that? Just give them what they need. Yeah, just give them what they need. There's the drug supply. And then the person's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Then, then their lives don't have to interfere with mine because most people are selfish. But until there is that legal supply, I mean... Not just purchasing the drugs. I mean, if, if, if you have a job, that's fine. But in the core neighborhood where I police, I mean, this is a very struggling community, very low income, um, high indigenous population, lots of racism and discrimination going on. They're still having to commit their crimes to get their drugs. And so it's, I feel like if we just say, OK, we're not going to arrest them for the possession of drugs, that's great. But it, it's the smallest Band-Aid on top of this big complex issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree that decriminalization without addressing a safe supply is not the whole solution. That's right. And I think voices within policing that are really coming out to say safe supply as well uh, and saying decriminalization and saying, in fact, we feel that this so strongly we're making this decision in this jurisdiction to stop arresting people. Now, Prime Minister, do your part or, or, or Premier or, or whomever, do your part and, and help us with the safe supply. Because we only right. have half of the solution here with our handcuffs. You need to give the the other hand, the other uh, part of the solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ch- Chief Wayhall on my podcast there a couple weeks said it the best. He said, please have the issues that they need to deal with that we're experts in. So we can we could maybe be experts in the organized crime side, you know, the, the driving side, the try, trying to reduce crime side. But we're not medical professionals, and nor should we pretend that we are and start putting our voices somewhere. So that should come out of the medical community that should say... Okay, we're gonna give this we're gonna supply this person with XYZ to to help them with their addiction. Whereas, you know, but we, we can handle, you know, this part of the equation, but we need to outsource kind of outsource these problems to the entire community, I suppose, of of professional organizations to get them rolling. I but, mean uh,
1: let's like just to circle back on the organized crime and the dealing question for a minute. I think the, the way you get rid of the Al Capone's is by making booze legal again. You know, that's exactly. the best way to address organized crime. Exactly. But short of that, what happens when you go after organized crime is you actually create chaos, at least organized crime in the drug trade. Like in this city, I remember when they arrested one of the big three who were in the uh, heroin trade. And it created a lot of violence between the remaining two as they were deciding who was going to fill that void. It created a lot right. of chaos for the traffickers and the drug users downstream. It meant the quality of the product changed rapidly. So probably a lot of people got overdoses or or dope sick or all kinds of crazy things from all that. Right. And it's uh, it's an illegal market, which is really vulnerable to shocks. Right. And those arrests put shocks through the market. And one of the things we tell people is, try to know the person you score off or try to establish some kind of trust or at least try to figure out something that gives you a little bit more certainty and certainly test your drugs. But that's one of the ways people keep themselves safe is nurturing those relationships. And when those relationships are disrupted, it makes things more risky for people. So I actually think, and I know this is quite controversial, but let's, let's not arrest drug dealers. You know, that's not going to solve your problem because all it does is creates a vacuum. That is right. very quickly filled and it doesn't stand still. It's filled by a new generation of people who have to harden themselves to increase policing. It gives us the iron law of prohibition, which means let's get something that's smaller volume and stronger and, and easier to move. And maybe we don't have to move at big distances. Maybe we don't have to huge, huge, um, have huge acres of poppy fields growing. Maybe we have a small lab that's closer to where our market is. for fentanyl that's fentanyl replacing heroin yeah and and so those kind of arrests actually create lots and lots of harms but i don't know if they do any good
0: right yeah it's tough it's tough man it's uh, um, fascinating things to think about really um interesting things to ponder for sure it's it's tough because man like you you know, we see, as I said at the conference, they like, while the presentation's going, my partner's texting me and they see like kilos of, of meth and coke. Or actually, sorry, only a couple ounces of meth and coke, but kilos of, of uh, fentanyl, which was obviously going to be pressed in. It's like, oh man, like, it's pretty hard not to feel like you just saved a bunch of lives. And I know that's what the, the culture, the policing culture believes that, you know, at least... It seems like we've gotten ourselves into such a mess, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That the intention of our seizures now, I would like to think, are at least <laughs> more noble than maybe they were back when Prohibition was just kicking off and we were a bunch of idiots, you know, as a profession running around arresting people because we thought drug users were bad. I, I think so, the I intent mean, that's, is now.
1: The, Prohibition started out here in 1908. Right. You know, it, after uh, this big racist pogrom of of you know uh, people who are in hysterics over immigration right over the Japanese here in Vancouver. And, yeah. that's right and, um, and so you know it was connected to opium dens and all the stuff. So the first the Opium Act of 1908 was passed because of things that happened in Vancouver. The first big drug arrest was here within months. Yeah. and it just hasn't stopped since. And so I just don't know where this where this rupture has come, where no. we have made a change in policing from the past. Because you said you like to think that the, the current things are more noble than the past things, and it's just like, was it like a Tuesday in February where this <laughs> change know. happened? Like I know. Some, I missed the memo, you know, because I just I, I haven't felt it.
0: Well, I often use. I mean, in Canada, we have the uh, we use Peel's principles. I don't know if you ever heard of who Sir Robert Peel is, but he's kind of the the dude kind of the, who invented cops. He's he's the dude who invented community based policing. Yeah. And so he's based uh, based in in England, and that's that's the model. And police agencies still preach the Peel's principles. We are trained on it. We're talked about it, and and we're in we're in strict violation. And, and I I tell that, and that's the narrative that I'm that I'm trying to spin with our with with my colleagues is that we're in violation of our own principles here. You know, we're we're not we're not helping. We're not we're yeah. Anyways, that's that's a different scu- discussion to be had. But Garth. Uh, I could talk to you for hours, ma'am. You've you've given me a you've given me a lot to think about. And uh and I hope I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about. I'd love to talk to you again and maybe we can maybe we can talk about one small topic and just go down a go down a dark path and <laughs> and see what ideas we could throw around. Um what do you got going on in your life, Garth? You're you're a busy guy. Uh I know you've got a podcast that you said it's called Crackdown that started. Is that is yes, that sorry. launched we're just, yet? Uh,
1: we're launching in January. Uh, we have sort of an editorial board of um, people who've been uh, drug users for a long time, and also drug user activists, and uh, we're working to sort of bring the science and the lived experience together and put them on the same the same level, so Brilliant. that uh, we can make a podcast that's accessible to. Um, people who are somehow working in this, in, from a medical perspective, to drug users, to, to people who are family members, to whoever um, uh, might need to get a hold of this. My observation is that that a lot of the way that the um, the crisis is covered isn't in enough isn't in enough depth, and um, right. and we wanted to sort of bring a little more of our experience to that. So it's definitely one of the projects uh, I'm working on right now.
0: Right on, Garth. Well, thanks a lot. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, to promote while you're while you're on here with our listeners?
1: No. If people uh, want to get in touch, the best way is Twitter. I'm at Garth Mullins, and uh, thanks very much, Matt. Good luck. And uh, look, I'm really gonna see about that EDM track with you saying uh, police could decriminalize anytime <laughs> we want. I, I, we could. I, that's gonna be ringing in my head for days.
0: Do it, man. I, that's, that's what I tell everyone. We we could do it. We're allowed to.
1: Well, Godspeed, Officer. I, I hope that <laughs> I hope that you get some purchase with that.
0: Yeah, you you too, Garth. Keep up the great work, man. Uh, and I'll I'll keep uh, paying attention to your Twitter feed as well. And I'm look forward to, your, to hearing your podcast in January.
1: Thanks, thanks, man. Okay,
0: take take care. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the CNOW dot podcast. Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at sayno.org. Also, check out our website www.sayknow.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast, and tell all your friends and family because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together, We're trying to make some positive changes in our. As far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time.